Lord, your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And by your word, you bring illumination for us as Christians to understand more deeply who you are, to learn about all that you have done for us and what you want to continue to do in us. Lord, as we study this morning now, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And Father, help us to have a deeper love and respect for the inspired word that you have given us. Lord, may, may we not treat these words lightly. They are God. They are you speaking. Help us this morning, Lord, then to hear your message, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the Library of Congress is the world's largest library with over 16 million books on its shelves. Many years ago, while in college, I would on occasion go down to the Library of Congress to do research because they had books that no one else obviously has. And you walk into the Library of Congress and unless you're a PhD, you immediately feel dumb. It is a daunting place. And to see millions of books surrounding you on every side is overwhelming. At least it was to me. Now, Imagine all of the information contained on millions of subjects standing right before you. Now imagine not a library as big as the Library of Congress, but one as big as the world. Imagine a library the size of our world. And try to wrap your mind around that reality, that world-sized library, And to understand that John, our author here, writes that all of the books written on just one subject, Jesus Christ, cannot be contained in that size library. Think about that for just a moment. John writes in chapter 21, verse 25, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Can you imagine a library card, how big that card has to be to get into that library? A world as big as ours, and there's not enough books that can, in the world that can contain all about one man, Jesus Christ. This, this book in particular, this gospel, one of four gospels, this, this book is about Jesus Christ. Don't don't become so familiar with the gospel that you miss the 
amazement of reading about Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. The Word that was in the beginning. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. And now that Word, Jesus, dwells among us. And this book is about that. And this book is not just about Jesus. It is about Jesus among us. And when we read this, we are reading about Jesus dwelling among us. This book, this gospel does not scratch the surface of all that Jesus has done, but it does tell us what we need to know to believe in Jesus Christ, to follow after Jesus as a disciple, and by believing that we will find life in his name. That is John twenty thirty one. that John writes, he says, I write these things that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. That is the backdrop painting of this book. It's on every page of this book. John writes this so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, God who became flesh, and that by believing that you will have life. You'll have life. Understand, you've been brought from death to life. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but made alive in Jesus Christ. And that by believing This is that ongoing backdrop of our study. Never forget that as you're reading John in your devotional time, as we are studying John. Now in in the backdrop are these thundering proclamations that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But there's also in the subtlety of whispered comments that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he has come to save humanity from sin, Satan, judgment, and the wrath to come. And this morning, our study brings us to the end of chapter 1 that only furthers what we have learned so far. Verse 19 through 34, when we studied last week, we had finished the prologue and, and we began in verse 19. And, and that is this, there, there's a one week period that John is chronicling right here. And last week, starting in verse 19 through verse 34, that was day one. We are going through a profound week in the life of Jesus because he is introduced to you. He is introduced to me. He's introduced to the world. And we are introduced to him. We begin to find out more about him. And in this week, we see a lot happening in a one-week period. 
In this one week, in verses 19 through 34, that first day, we learn a number of things about Jesus. We learn in verse 20 that he is the Messiah. We learn in verse 23 that he is the Lord. We learn in verse 29 that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We learn in verse 33 that he is the Holy Spirit baptizer. And we learn in verse 34 he is the Son of God. All those names in 15 verses, we learn about all these things that Jesus is. And then we are moving and then and then day two is is fit in there. And then all of a sudden we get to verse 35 and read along with me. The next day. So there's already been. Two days, verse 19 was day one, verse 29 was day two. And now verse 35, we see day three. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, remember in day one, all these Pharisees and crowds and Sadducees and Herodians, a a group of different men were all coming to John the Baptist to find out who he was. Back in those days, there, there were prophecies about a Messiah coming and people at times, men would pop up and claim to be the Messiah. They would claim to, to be the one who was going to rule the world, so to speak, and people would follow and there would be turmoil created. And so everybody wants to know when someone else shows up on the scene and starts gathering crowds, who is this guy and, and what is he all about? And so all these questions are being asked of John the Baptist. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. And, and then they're like, well, then who the heck are you? What are you doing here gathering crowds? And that is, that's just day one. And then day two, John, is, John the Baptist is standing there and Jesus walks by and by this time he had already baptized Jesus. He knew who Jesus was and he looks at Jesus and he makes this statement. This statement that is the life-changing, world-changing statement for everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He talks about having a vision from God and seeing, seeing the Spirit of God resting upon Jesus. And he bears witness that he is the Son of God. That's day two. And now day three, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So 
You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is the word of the Lord. And it is amazing to us. And there's a lot in there. (laughs) There is a lot in there. Day three, we learn about who Jesus is and the ministry that he now begins. And on almost every day of this prolific week, something is happening as we will will learn because there's more to come. But it culminates in chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana. That is, that is where this week is going to end. But this is where soon, this is what is considered from verse 19 all the way through the end of chapter 12 is considered the book of signs. We have the prologue, verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. Then verse 19 all the way through the end of chapter 12. We have the book of signs all these signs that Jesus is performing. And then from 13 on through to, to 20, we have the book of glory. It's really about the last week of Jesus' life and his crucifixion and his death on a cross. He is the lamb who is taking away the sin of the world. And then we end in chapter 21 with the epilogue. But now, right now, we are in verse 33 and we are reading about John the Baptist who, whose sole ministry, John the Baptist was sent by God. His sole ministry is to do one thing and one thing only. And that is to point people to Jesus Christ. That's what John the Baptist is all about. And in verse 35, he opens with already a familiar proclamation where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now he does that to a crowd, a a large crowd of Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and Levites and, and just curious people. But in this instance, he's standing by beside just two of his disciples, Andrew and Another disciple not named, but most likely the writer of this gospel, John. 
So he's sta- and I'm going to refer to these two men as Andrew and John because I, I, I agree with most of the commentators that, that that is who this is. So the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist not only points to Jesus, but now he does something different. He pushes his disciples to Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, when it says the two disciples, that word disciple means that they were disciples of John, not Jesus. These men were following John the Baptist. They were disciples of him. And all of a sudden there's this turn. Now, now, these guys have been following John for a while. They trusted him. They respected him. They were learners from him. They were disciples. And all of a sudden, he makes this comment, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they turn and they follow after Jesus. He, because John the Baptist is aware of this, he can never take away the sin of the world. But Jesus can He can't do for these men what they need most done, which is salvation. And so he pushes these men towards Jesus. Both John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, the writer of this gospel, witness about Jesus. Because we're reading about what John the Baptist is saying, but understand John the writer, the evangelist, is witnessing to you right now. He is telling you, behold, the Lamb of God. Will you be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Will you follow after him? They both want us to come and see. And they want us to come and see the one who came to find us. And that is the title of my message this morning. Come and see the one who found you. Come and see the one who found you. And my proposition simply is come see and follow the one who saw you first. That you might find life in his name. Come see and follow the one who saw you first. That you might find life in his name. Three points this morning about coming, seeing, and following that you might find life in his name. The first one is this, because John tells his readers this. He said, listen, if you've been called by Jesus, if you've been called, and this is what we'll discover in the passage, if you have been called by Jesus, first, you belong to him. You belong to him. He saw you. He chose you and he claimed you for his own before you ever found him. Point number two, and I'll repeat it again. If you've been called by Jesus, you will be transformed by him. He patiently transforms those who belong to him. And thirdly, if you have been called by Jesus, you will see the heavenly kingdom in and through him. You belong to him, you'll be transformed by him, and you'll see the kingdom of God through him. 
Point one, you belong to him. He saw you, he chose you, and he claimed you for his own before you found him. Day three, in verse 35, John the Baptist witness. This is what I believe happened. John is standing there and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, this is a gospel account. Again, all these things, all the things that Jesus said and did cannot be contained in, in all the books that you could fill in the entire world, much less the Library of Congress. So there's a lot more conversation that probably took place here that we're not privy to, that we're not able to, to zero in on. But I would say this, when, when they have heard this a second time, because they are his disciples, most likely they heard him the first time say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they hear this a second time, I would submit to you they were convicted by sin. John is preaching a, a what? A baptism of repentance. And that's what these disciples are hearing. Jesus, and then Jesus invites them to come. Jesus turned in verse 38 and saw them following and, and, and he, he is inviting them to come as we will read on in a little bit. But as believers, as new believers, it is often, you talk to a new believer and, and, and you hear this, I found Jesus Christ. I am so excited. I found Jesus. Back in 1976, long before many of you were born, there was a campaign. It was the Jesus Movement. I was 21 years old. And uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and Young Life and um, ministries just, I mean, it was just, it was, it had come out of the, the hippie movement of the 60s and the Jesus movement, um, which just was ushered in in the early 70s. And there was this, this group of people that started a campaign and they called it the I Found It campaign. Now, does anybody here remember the I Found It campaign? Good. There's a few of you. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Well, in this huge evangelistic campaign, there were, it was, there were yellow bumper stickers with black lettering that just said, I found it. And people were wearing bracelets and t-shirts and it was on television and there were flyers and there was all of these different um, gatherings about, I found it. And the whole purpose was that somebody would, and you'd be wearing a t-shirt that simply said, I found it. And of course, somebody would come to you curious and just say, what did you find? And you just say, well, I found Jesus Christ, which was then to instill in them this desire to go and find Jesus Christ. Except that there was another campaign where people were going around saying, well, I didn't lose it. <laughs> it, was, it was an amazing time because it was drawing people to understand about Jesus Christ. And in John, John records a very similar, I found it campaign here. In verse 35 and on, we see that, you know, 
the next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Two, two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And then jump down to verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, I found it. We have found the Messiah. We have found him. And then later on, Jesus calls Philip to follow him. And then Philip goes and he finds Nathanael. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. I found it. And there's this idea that they have found Jesus, the Son of God. And, and they're, they're, they're excited about it. But here's the real story behind this I found it campaign. Luke 19 is the real story behind this I found it campaign. And that's what makes my first point. You belong to Jesus Christ if you've been called by him. Jesus in Luke 19, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The reality of the I Found It campaign is that you did not find it. You were found by Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you were chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world, before you were born, before you were created, before you were a twinkle in your dad and mom's eyes. You were already chosen. You were already found. You were already discovered by God. Because you were already in his eternal purposes in, and plans. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul writes, In love he predestined us. Out of the love of God, you were already chosen. You were already found. He came to you. John 1.14, The word became flesh and did what? And dwelt among us. You didn't find him and come to him first. He found you. He came to you. Your salvation rests in Christ alone. And the wonderful benefits of having your salvation rest in Christ alone, having the benefit is this, that that Jesus found you is first. His finding you gives you eternal assurance. Jesus saw these men and called them long before they ever found him. He saw you and he called you long before you ever saw him. Your salvation is secure because in God's eternal purpose, you can't lose Christ. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning searching around the house looking for Jesus Christ. Where did I place him? You are found and you can't lose Christ because he will never lose you. You belong to Jesus Christ. If he called you, you belong to him eternally. You belong to him and he will never lose you. In fact, in John, later on in John, we will read Jesus actually saying, I will never lose those the Father has given to me. 
you will always belong to Jesus Christ. And secondly, the benefit of being found by Christ is that his choosing you isn't based on what you are or who you are or what you do or what you're able to accomplish or what you can't accomplish. Your sins did not keep Christ from choosing you, nor did your talents inspire him to choose you. He chose you from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. You belong to him. And Jesus, Jesus in his calling is always taking the initiative. Look in, look in verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, it might appear that they are the ones initiating, but no, we know that God chose them. God came to seek and save the lost. He chose them before the foundation of the world. And here's what Jesus does. He turns and he sees them following and says to them, what are you seeking? Jesus takes the initiative. I mean, get this. The disciples are just... John the Baptist makes this comment. Behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus is walking by. And so he walks by. And then kind of the two disciples like, let's follow him. You know, and they start to follow, but they don't, they don't like go up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, Larry, nice to meet you. Can I come along? No, no, no. It's just, you know, they're following at a distance and Jesus has to turn back and look at them. And, and, and he doesn't say, hey, come on. He, he challenges them. He says, what are you seeking? What, what is it you're after? And, and it's, in that question, what are you seeking? What he's really asking them is this. What do you want from me? What are you hoping for? What is the desire of your heart? It's a, it's a question that is penetrating to their very soul. Are they really, really ready to follow after him? Are they truly willing to follow after the Christ? Are they willing to leave all behind now that they have been called by Jesus Christ? He, and he asks the same question of you. What are you seeking in following Jesus Christ? Why are you following Jesus Christ? Because hidden behind his question is a statement. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you something. Your life. It's going to cost you something. Because to those who belong to him, to those he has called, to those he has chosen before the foundation of the world, he does this. He makes a claim upon your life. He claims you as his own. That claim is that you no longer rule over your own life. That claim means you belong to him because you were bought with a price. What are you seeking? The first point is, if you've been called, you belong to him. When I say belong, I mean We are a people of his own possession. He's made a claim upon us. What are you seeking? Why are you following? 
Because he's made a claim upon your life. You belong to him. Secondly, if you've been called by Christ, you'll be transformed by him. You will be transformed. He patiently transforms those who belong to him. Look how patient he is in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And their response, of course, is, where are you staying? (laughs) Not, well, here's what I'm seeking. Here's what I'm hoping for. They answer a question with a question. Now, if I, putting myself in their place, I'm sure it's intimidating. The creator of the world is looking at me saying, what do you want? (laughs) And it's not a genie coming out of a lamp giving three wishes. He wants to know why you're here. And rather than respond to him, they just kind of like, oh, well, where are you staying? (laughs) But Jesus is patient with them. Even though they don't answer his question, Jesus responds very kindly. He said to them, when they respond, where are you staying? He says, well, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see? Those are some of the most profound words in all of Scripture. Come and see. There isn't a person in this room who's, who hasn't put, who's put their faith in Christ who hasn't heard these words, come and see. Every one of you heard, come and see. And rather, rather than, than chastising them for not answering his questions, he is just very patient with them. And so they ask him, well, where are you staying? And that word stay, it, they're, they're not asking about his hotel accommodations. You know, what, what hotel are you staying in? <clears throat> what local inn have you chosen? The word stay in the Greek literally means the word abide. Where are you abiding? Because in their minds, when they're thinking of abiding, they, they, it, it captures more than just where are we going to lay our heads down tonight? It means where are we going to spend time with the Savior of the world to know more about him. Being late in the day, it's the 10th hour. Jesus answers their question by inviting them to abide with him that night. They are drawn to spend time with him. They are drawn to learn about him. They are drawn to learn from him. And what a night that must have been. What a night. No doubt their lives were transformed by the Savior at that moment. Listen, these are, these are most likely very brand new believers. They're responding to John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They respond to Jesus inviting them to come and see. They abide with him through an entire evening. And yet they are like all new believers. They don't know anything. And they assume much. But they've been changed. We see Christ's transforming effect 
In verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah. What's, what's the first response of spending this night with Jesus, meeting the Savior? I've got to go tell somebody else. And even though my telling is theologically incorrect, it doesn't really matter because I'm so excited about what I've just found. What a transforming effect. And now Simon meets Jesus. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And Andrew brings Peter, Simon Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, you are Simon, son of John. You're going to be called Peter, which means rock. Now, that is an immediate transformation. There's this in a sense, prophetic utterance over Simon's life, going from Simon to Peter. When a name is changed, you see a transforming work of God. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel. God is at work. And now Simon meets Jesus, and again, another person is transformed. And then, although, as we read in the Gospels, the transformation of Simon to Peter the Rock is very slow indeed. Read just a few more chapters, and you will begin to see. Peter don't quite get it. He is loud, he is arrogant, he is brash. Life around him is tumultuous. He is... He is just out of his depth all the time. Making statements. He is wishy-washy. And he, at the end of his time with Jesus, denies the Savior. And yet Jesus calls him the rock. Because Jesus knew, wasn't talking about right now. He was talking about years to come. Because the gospel, Jesus Christ, has a transforming effect on those who belong to him. Those he has called, they belong to him. And those he has called, he transforms them patiently. Peter was years in the making. You are years in the making. I am years in the making. The transforming grace of God always works in us, but it works patiently in us. Although it is oftentimes very slow by your standards, it's happening. God is at work. He is patient with you in your fear. He's patient with you in your anger. He's patient with you in your bitterness. He is patient with you in your lust, your greed, your wanderings. He is patient with you. Now listen, his patience never means he accepts your sin, ever. But it does mean he always forgives your sin. He always forgives your sin. The way that Jesus was patient with Peter is the way that he is patient with us. The riches of his grace reveal the depth of his patience. The riches of his grace reveal the depth of his patience. He has 
promise. Because he has called you and because you belong to him, he has promised to patiently transform you. And that patient transformation is a lifelong transformation. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It takes a long time. And thirdly, the last point is if you have been called by Jesus you will see the heavenly kingdom revealed in him. You will see the heavenly kingdom revealed in him. In his gospel life, in the life of Christ, he, will, he shows you his kingdom, he shows you his rule, his authority, his power, his truth, his protection, and his salvation. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom being revealed. And in verse 43 through 51, we see this. The next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee and he finds Philip and he says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. Now, understand Bethsaida was one of the cities that Jesus curses. It's a wicked, wicked city. How wonderful. I mean, you wouldn't know that from reading this, but, but that's the history behind Bethsaida, which is wonderful because it just tells us it doesn't matter where we're from. God doesn't have any parameters on who he chooses. It's based on his own sovereign wisdom and mystery and mercy and grace. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So you've got three guys coming from this really wicked city. We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there, here's again another one of those new believer mistakes. Jesus of Nazareth. Because when you say Jesus of whatever, you're declaring that's his hometown. Larry Wethji of New York. Right? If I said Larry Wethji of Maryland, that wouldn't be accurate. That's not where he's originally from. And Jesus was not originally, that's not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. It really should have been Jesus of Bethlehem. But it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, which they got right. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, here, this is in Galilee. Galilee is sort of despised by the Israelites. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a low-lying place that, that they, don't, they don't respect. And, and just north of Galilee is Nazareth. So the Galileans have to despise somebody because they're despised, so they choose Nazareth. So understand this is what's going on here. So when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's just being arrogant because he's being treated that way from those who think anybody who comes from Galilee, can anything good come out of Galilee? And so he makes this statement and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Here you begin to see the, the divinity, the deity, the supernatural power of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? Oh, I knew you before the world began. I knew you. I knew you because I predestined you. I knew you because I chose you. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, 
before you even heard come and see, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi. So here's another. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. He is called the, the Lamb of God. He is called the Son of God. And now he is, he is called the Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Look at all of these names assigned to Jesus in just one chapter. Just one chapter. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this is an allusion to Genesis 28, where Jacob is wandering in the wilderness, not really connected to God at all. And he lays his head down. He has this vision. And it's called, it's often referred to as Jacob's ladder. He sees angels ascending and descending. And at the top of the ladder is God himself. And, and literally at that moment, um, Jacob kind of has a come to meeting, come to Jesus meeting moment. He, he meets Jesus, he meets God. And he calls this, he says, this, and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. This is where God dwells. And this is what Jesus is alluding to. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel is, is just intrigued, amazed. He's overwhelmed by the power of God in this moment. And, and he, is, he is now hearing not just that Jesus can do this miracle. He's, Jesus is telling him, look, there's greater things. You just you haven't even seen what I can do. You haven't even begun to understand what I will do. All culminating in my death on the cross. All culminating in the salvation that I will offer through my sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross. And not only that, you will see my resurrection. You want to see power? You think you've seen power? Wait till you see just a few, few verses later, Lazarus being risen from the dead. Me rising from the dead. Oh, oh, Nathaniel, you haven't begun to see. And, and this, but more importantly, I think what we see in this is truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The connection between heaven and earth is who? The Son of Man. Jesus. That is, what, that is what Jesus is alluding to here. Now, I'm not an expert on angels. But I do believe this verse is meant to encourage you that God's angels are alive and real in your life. I really do. I have... I mean, who here doesn't have a story where... There's no explanation for what happened in your life other than it had to be an angel of God. And this was back in the 90s. Marilyn and I were living in Atlanta at the time, and we were driving home from dinner one night, and we're at a stoplight. And the light turns green, and I hit the accelerator, and then for no, un, for just un, no reason whatsoever, totally unexplained, I hit the brake, and we just stopped. And the moment I stopped... 
this car came by 50, 60 miles an hour and missed us by inches. Not feet, by inches. If I had gone forward, I'd be gone. Don't know about Maryland, I would definitely be gone. Why did I stop? I'm just attributing it to God and angels. There was an angel, I wanted to go, and he said no. And he hits the brake. God has his angels abiding near us. Jesus is telling Nathaniel, and you, you're going to see greater things. Why? Because God is near. Because God is near. Listen, God sent John the Baptist to witness to a dying world that Christ has come. He inspired the Apostle John to write this gospel, these things that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. These witnesses were sent by God for your eternal good. And because these witnesses came, this gospel is here, you belong to Jesus Christ You are being transformed by Jesus Christ. And you are being given visions of heaven through Jesus Christ. And listen, that holy responsibility to witness after John the Baptist and after this gospel, that holy responsibility to witness was taken up first by Andrew to Simon and then by Philip to Nathaniel. Eventually, Peter in Acts 2 is witnessing to massive crowds and thousands are coming to Christ and being saved. And now you are called to do the same. Because behind your witness, behind you and your witness, stands Jesus Christ. The one who has called you. The very same God who stood behind these men stands behind you. In his sovereign wisdom and his sovereign plan, he's called you to be a witness. Peter and Paul, they were unusual men used extraordinarily by God. But you don't hear much about Andrew. You don't hear much about Nathaniel. You don't hear much about Philip. And the Philip that is here is not the Philip from Acts chapter 6. Different Philip. You don't hear much about these men. They're just ordinary guys like you and me who went out and they found their family and they found their friends and they told them about the one who had come from heaven and they simply said, come and see. Brothers and sisters, here's my heart for Grace Church. Let us be bold in this church as these men were in their day. Jesus stands behind all of us because we belong to him, because we're being transformed by him, because we have been given a vision of heaven that one day is going to come to total fruition, that we might be witnesses for him. Listen, if Nathaniel, if Nathaniel will see greater things, then why not you? Why not you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world. Thank you that 
where we thought we found you, you had already found us. Thank you that you are not only have you found us, you are transforming us. And Lord, you are giving us a vision of heaven that sustains us until the day you return or we return back to you. Lord, may these things be true in our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.